0: netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com.
1: Hi, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our guest this week is Marty Romances, co-founder of Territory Studio, a company who's worked on a wide variety of high-end projects, including doing things such as creating screen and other graphics for films like Dune, Blade Runner 2024, and more. Here at Effects Guide, we have an article that's interesting, I think, about their work using Unreal Engine to do onset work, creating holographic UI elements on flat screens or tablets. It uses the camera tracking information to display the graphics correctly from the perspective of the camera. And I'll include a link in the show notes. They do really interesting work outside of the traditional commercial or entertainment world as well. For instance, Territory helps Nike effectively navigate the world of digital products. They help bring Nike's physical products to the digital world with things like Nike's Dot Swoosh and their R-Force One collection. So really interesting stuff. Got their hands in a lot of places. that are really cool. He and Mike touch on all these subjects, as well as take a look at what might be coming down the road with tech improvements and head-worn displays, such as Apple's Vision Pro and its higher-quality display, and why this type of thing is really right in the company's wheelhouse. So let's go ahead and cross that conversation now. It's Mike Seymour speaking with Marty Romances.
0: Marty, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure.
0: So when did the studio start? Give me the background for your studio.
2: Sure. It uh, started uh, over 12 years ago now in London. Nick and David and Lee, three original founders, started the office. Um, we started as a, as a very small team uh, producing graphics for Motion graphics for brands, mainly commercial work and uh, brand work, explainer videos and whatnot. that's how it started um, but very, very quickly we got to have the opportunity to work with Ridley scott and and other um, film directors on basically uh, the same motion graphic animations in this case used for a different um, well, a different use case, but mainly just to tell stories. Uh, it's a design using design as a universal uh, language and being able to show very quickly with a graphic how someone is going from A to B rather than having that director have two very expensive actors <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a longer script telling us that, telling the audience that. We
0: spoke last year uh, about March, I think it was in 22. Um, about some really interesting stuff you had done back then about making a 2D screen look like it was a actual hologram because uh, I think you actually got a, an Unreal um, grant for this, a mega grant. But just explain what, what I'm talking about. So basically the screen is, of course, two-dimensional if it's a normal screen or a uh, iPad, but you would visually film it so it looked like it was a hologram.
2: Yeah, that's correct. And so uh, for all of these 12 years, we've helped lots of uh, Of these films with screens that play on set but we also helped a lot in post-production right we have to add lots of things that are not possible in a normal set and that goes from holograms to screens showing 3d content then we need to go through the tracking green screen all of these processes that we we're very familiar with Uh, we as soon as we started testing and working in the virtual production environment where we were uh, synchronizing the cameras to a big led set big volumes. Um, there was a point when we realized that we could be using a slight tweak to that technology uh, instead instead of applying it to an LED volume for a set extension, we could apply it to our interactive screens that we have so much experience with. And we knew that by doing that, we could use normal screens and even tactile screens such as iPads, and we could just um, use them uh, to feature To the camera only to the camera angle point of view 3d graphics in the same way that uh we do with the volumes because basically what we are doing is we're having a sensor in in the camera the camera the system knows where the camera is at all times and also the system knows where the screens are so that means like uh we can skew all of these graphics to the perfect angle for the camera uh, in order for us to show that there is parallax that there is Volumetry inside of those screens that continue to be tactile, continue to be screens that uh, people can use in those sets. Let's say you have a spaceship, uh, you could still use that, and the camera will see 3D graphics inside of those screens without any need for a post production process to happen.
0: When I was explaining that concept to somebody, I used the analogy of people when they put graphics on football fields. And if you're in the stadium, the graphic seems oddly shaped and skewed and like sort of bent out of alignment but of course from the camera's angle it seems like a perfect square um, but only from the camera's angle right but of course in your case you're doing it so a handheld camera could move around that screen and that square would look like it was three-dimensionally shifting of course again optical illusion but but really interactive and so I, I thought that was great and we, we did a story about that and I'll put a link in the show notes to it on FX Guide but I wanted to talk to you if I could about sort of this fundamental point of doing things like these graphics and screens, because you've done a lot of stuff. I know you've did uh, Mission Impossible, the latest one. I think you're on the uh, creator, um, yeah. Gareth's new film coming out uh, at the end of the month. So mm-hmm. you're doing. Are you guys? Do you consider that work to be visual effects work or art department? It
2: mix is is both, and the reality is that um, we've been doing both in many of the shows. Uh, So there's a consistency with the graphics. We start with the art department. We start with concepts of graphics that will need to be built on set. And I think this graphical language sometimes even goes beyond the screen. But we we work with our department first. We prep everything for when we need to uh, shoot all of those sequences. And those graphics are picked by the lens. They are real graphics. So we're talking about on-set playback. But as soon as this starts to um, get to the end of production, we then already start working on visual effects, graphics, concepts, concepts that uh, show uh, the director and uh, production designer how certain things that we cannot do in reality, such as holograms and whatnot, will look and uh, how those will be consistent to the other graphical language that we created for Onset. So there's no big jump or no big disparity between the same technology. And then, as students post and uh, you know post production starts and begins, we are the ones uh, either compositing those graphics into the final shots, or sometimes also sending those assets and some of these pre comps for whoever is responsible for that final comp. We uh, end up collaborating a lot with many different VFX houses, such as ILM, Digital Domain, Scanline, like. All of those that will also be involved in those films, uh, uh, with their, with their part, you know, with their, with their section, they they all do different things sometimes, and we're always the guys doing the same, which is those graphics for most of the time.
0: So let's discuss a couple of those sort of graphics just to get a clear perspective on that. So in the film June, you did the uh, orthocopter console controls, right, which are basically like the helicopter controls in the thing that's clearly not a helicopter in june and these are incredibly viscerally tactile looking kind of knobs dials and in particular kind of displays of like uh you know uh your pitch and roll i mean they just look like they could have been taken out of a real helicopter so so for stuff like that where does that fit into the equation did you do that for our department or did you just do that after the effect and Or did you actually comp them in? Like, where did that sit?
2: Most of it, and especially with the knee and uh, like Dune or Blade Runner, for like all of this work that needs to be a bit more gritty, needs to be a bit more analog touch. um, We we most of the times have it on set, and that's and that's the beauty of it. Now that said, sometimes uh, you plan for things, and maybe the camera did not pick them up as much as you wish, and you still have that element that you can pass them to comp- you know, compositors for them to bring it back up in post. That happens quite a lot, you know, especially when you have different lights reflections and certain things that reflect on a, on a reflective surface such as screens uh, that maybe they have also had glass on top for whatever reason. So it's, it's both. And most of the times, especially with this director, we try to and wants us to get to the very, very uh, analog play on set. And if we compare that with, say,
0: Ant-man and the Wasp, where you were doing designs that clearly couldn't exist on set, because they're very much like holographic controls that they're using to fly around with. So like clearly they can't be on set because unlike something I don't know, like in um the Batman or in you know something else where it's on a screen, this is of a world where the tech is completely fantastical, right? So, so, how complete were your Ant-Man designs before they were shooting? Like, did the actors know what they were interacting with, or was it? Did you work off what the actors did and try and make logic of their hand movements, as it were?
2: I think we we will all love that in an ideal world, all of those things. And sometimes it happens, but for most of the times, even with a with a design that you're showing to an actor or an actress. It's going to be sometimes very difficult for them to really see uh, or or move exactly. So we need to always adapt. Uh, we we show certain things uh, that you know production designers will talk with the director, and you know the director will talk with the talent. Uh, that we try to simplify as much as we can on hand movement and gestures. Uh, but at that point, yes, we do have a previous. We do have uh, an element uh, of of that graphic that that they can see. But as I was saying, this isn't an ideal um, world in an ideal life. Sometimes things change and uh, things need to be adapted, especially in post, because, you know, you're not going to be the one responsible for not uh, saying to the director, this is, a, this is a bad take because he didn't do the, je- the gesture exactly how we want it, right? So we are, I think we're pretty much, um, well, not the last ones, but late into that decision making on what shot is good or not. And, and but that's one of the reasons why we also have uh, you know uh, our supervisors on set and and sometimes flagging these things out or coming up with solutions with certain uh, aims to uh, you know aims that we can remove in post production for them to to have a perfect outside or or tricks like this uh, sometimes like the typical tennis ball that's moving there for you to for you so sometimes we we apply those type of um, of, of tricks and markers and whatnot
0: not. I don't want to go into specific uh, tales of woe or anything, but is it ever hard to bridge that world between art department and VFX? Because like, you know, mm-hmm. it struck me that it's like normally really simple, right? Or why report to this person who reports to the director, right? Like if I'm in camera, I report to the DP, reports to the director. I'm, uh, mm-hmm. You know, a comp supervisor, I report to the visual effects supervisor who reports to the director. You guys are like, well, kind of servicing two masters. At least you could be, I don't know. Is it an easy thing to, to bridge?
2: uh honestly it's right one of the biggest issues we've seen especially at the beginning when when we were also doing when we started to do both and we started to go not only for onset delivery but visual effects because people did not know you for that they also had someone else doing it but then um they basically it's a problem of budgets production have a budget post-production has another budget and they they're two brothers, the brother and sister. They then talk to each other and they fight, right? And when one wants something from the other, you know, good luck on not having a bit of friction. Sometimes this is, this is how it is. As an analogy, the, the reality is that both could benefit a lot from using the same talent from the beginning that's going to do all of the graphical language, mainly for the final output. Uh, it just looks so much better. And you don't need to re-educate someone else, another company, to say, yes, look what territory did on set. This was all approved by production designers, directors, everyone who needed to approve it. So we have been working with our department on all of these graphical languages, visual languages. Why start over from scratch sometimes if you can have the same people that already has all of this knowledge create these graphics? and. And in an ideal world, again, uh, and we're starting to see now, finally, with the years, I think people realize that this is great, but also because now we can do final comps as well, as in we've been growing as a company to be able to accommodate and deliver everything from beginning to end. But uh, even, even now, sometimes uh, post-production will have another budget, different decisions are being made, and they're not gonna, you're not going to be the one doing the, the post-graphics. Uh, you're only going to be the the graphic, or the other way around. You're going to do the VFX, but they will have someone else for the on So this is still a bit of a uh, few shows where we where we realize this is happening.
0: So getting back to where we were starting the discussion, has that made become simpler, or I guess more understandable by everybody with the advent of virtual production and sort of LED volumes and stuff? Because that that's kind of in your favor, right? Like even if you're not necessarily doing it, it's kind of the mentality of what you're talking about.
2: I think I think it only aggravated more in, in a way oh, really? because, because now what you're saying is with this system that we created, you won't need to spend $4 million replacing these green screens. We can have all of these looking phenomenally in 3D, all tracked from the camera. But then wait a second, that means that we need to lose post-production budget, $4 million goes now to what? Pre-production because these things need to be ready before you shoot. That's even causing more friction, you know, in all honesty. And, and that's, there's a part that I understand. The director doesn't want to commit on set. The director commits in the editorial room. And we know that. And we know that people want to have control until the very end if they want to change something. But the reality is like, what are you going to change? Maybe a 10% still saving money. If 90% can be done on camera with these beautiful 3D effects without needing to track rotoscopes. Like and also like the light and all of the movement that these mm. screens generate is just so much better. The 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 DPs really love it. Mm. Just to have a fully out of focus, uh, you know, tactile just to fake all of this in comp, right? With a green screen added graphics, track and then the rack focus, things like this, it costs so much money when you look at volumes of hundreds of hundreds of shots when that happens. But the transition to make them commit with this extra budget upfront. To prepare um for for this that's that's where where we've seen where we've seen the the, the friction but that said with sort of uh, people that we've been working with these uh you know back to back on different projects over these 12 years the good thing is that we gain their trust and we can we can help them and tell them that's why we can do it this way that's why we can, and they value they value that so and that's why we're seeing more and more jobs where we are working with our department, all the way to um, post-production, final delivery.
0: Yeah, you said that uh, that uh, Tertiary Studios had you know got into being able to deliver final. So you do commercials, right? Like you did a Lexus commercial, for example, where presumably you had a graphics component, but you were doing more than just providing the graphics, right?
2: Well, a good example is a new PlayStation. Um, yep. I don't know if you've seen it in our website, in, in our gaming. Um, it's a commercial for PlayStation. Um, for uh, EA FC, what used to be the FIFA football soccer yep. game. And that is a good idea on how we tap commercials. Um, we work with great directors. We add all of our expertise in visual effects and, and CG graphics for crazy transitions, for things that are really out of this world. Uh, that, that's a good That's a good way to define how we apply visual effects to commercials we're very creative, and, and I think it comes from the fact that we're not a studio that only does visual effects for films and stuff. We, we're doing a lot for games. We're doing, uh, continue to do a lot of motion graphics and 3D work for brands, for even out of home, or even interactive stuff. We, we've been growing a lot with functional graphics that are not now for these uh, visual effects uh, spaceships of the future. Now, we're working on real uh, augmented reality um, solutions for, for the automotive industry. And I think all of these variety of projects bring this extra field of view uh, when, when it comes to tackling things creatively with, with the tool sets that we all have, right? Visual effects, software, compositing, 3D, 2D. So that's
0: one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about because um, I, I think that for a lot of people, like they would be really interested to hear how far... This extra stuff kind of goes, and the example that I thought we could discuss is the uh, Nike stuff. Can you tell us about the the Air Project?
2: Yeah, um, with Nike, uh, so they have a new division which is called the Nike Virtual Studios, started over a year ago, and uh, they, well, we joined forces with them. They were they are one of our retained clients, so. We have uh, a year-long contract every year to help them with their vision of what digital products mean when it comes to um, digital fashion and elements that you have digitally, virtual, virtual project, pro- yeah, virtual product basically. And at the beginning, we help a lot that team with the creative strategy on what you bring to to the team. Nike since the beginning, you know. Great to work with, and they have very, very talented people making amazing decisions. But they said one thing, which was at at Nike, we are not first, we are forever. And they were saying that because they started doing this on that craze of all of these NFTs and cryptocurrency, all of that, all of that movement. But they were about something else. They wanted to bring their physical product, this Nikes that everyone loved, to audiences that uh, play. Fortnite to audiences that play, you know, other video games, and they want them to be able to buy a shoe digitally to wear in the game when they go meet their friends in the game. So we started with them to create uh, and help creating that platform that they called Dot Swoosh, and Dot Swoosh is exactly that is the place where you can buy digital items from Nike that not necessarily have. Uh, you know a physical version and the first collection that we created for them uh, was the air force one um, collection which is a very you know it, it's it's an epic uh shoe that has sold, been sold since the early 90s and you know it's uh it's something that that really changed ownership of digital products uh you can buy a shoe and that will be your shoe and there's only maybe x amount of thousands of them so is that collectible element but also is the the way that you can use these shoes they can give you access to maybe one day a physical shoe maybe one can give you access to kind of you can wear it in that game that you play with your friends so exploring these things is also something that we started doing with um with brands especially because we've been doing a lot of things in real time so we've being prepared and preparing uh, our delivery for real time thanks to what we see coming up, which is mixed reality headsets, 3D, 3D graphics floating around us. Maybe one day I'll see you my through my uh, AR glasses and I'll see you wearing those digital Nikes that you are actually not wearing in, in the physical world. These these are like the the paradigms that are shifting now in terms of experiential and user experiences that that go beyond what we can imagine just yet. Now, uh, as a as a mainstream consumer, but as I was saying, we do the same with cars. We're putting these holograms floating in front of of a driver without the need of any screen because everything is an is a mixed reality, augmented reality solution.
0: Yeah, I guess and, the. I mean, I think Nike's been particularly successful with digital clothes or digital products like shoes. I mean, having a better like I think. The user interface for a car, or even a user interface for a game that, you know, I know you guys do UX and UI work, like that's Mm -hmm. great, but it still has this, you know, presumption that we're heading towards the physical world. Um, But here you're talking about people just buying digital shoes that will never necessarily have any physical correlation. I could just own a pair of these digital Mm -hmm. Nikes. Um, And of course it uses NFT technology behind the scenes blockchain technology Mm -hmm. so that you know doesn't get um copied and devalued but nevertheless like it's people have people have for a while i guess been really interested in collecting sneakers and and nike's been a you know prominent brand in that collector market but then having this kind of idea of collecting digital uh products and how Mm -hmm. successfully nike makes a narrative out of that and i was guessing i was wondering if you could speak to that because this isn't just well here's a design give me some money and I'll give you a notional token. There's yeah, a no. there's like a narrative around these products which you, sort of what makes them I guess so successful.
2: Well, here's the thing: um the way for a brand like them, like we've grown up with seeing their success, we've grown up with cultural move the cultural movement that they that they've created around athletes and around sports and uh, so. To begin with, uh, if we start thinking about how they can tap into a younger audience, the 12 year old that might not be able to afford, um, you know, $120 shoe, but that really, really wants to own something that is limited, uh, is unique, is, this, you know, there's a certain scarcity to it. Um, if at also the same time, that person, that that kid and 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 his or her friends can be just seeing it in a in a virtual environment. I'm I'm always thinking about Fortnite, right? Where you are a character and you can see your friends there. Yeah. And and it's it's a way to it's it's a way of ownership that is it's not um it's not physical, but still is 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 an ownable product that they emphasize with the brand and what the brand represents, and also the brand positions then they are positioning themselves into the world of games, which we know how important and how big it is. I'm not saying that Maggie has not had a massive relevance to the world, the the, the video games and the games industry. It's been massive. But with these and offering a platform that does not need, that eliminates all friction of all of this blockchain underlying technology that you just, you can go in and buy it with your own dollars, with your credit card or, and and that's also it's very important, right? A frictionless experience, an experience that brings um the branding to new audiences, these new audiences that want and expect um what we call inter- interoperability. So we can we can bring this here or there, depending on where you are, but that's your shoe, right? Whatever is this game or this other application that you want to see it in. And and it's it's setting a foundation as as i was saying what they said is we're not first we are forever is they're not after um a, a quick cash grab or anything they they're preparing something that culturally taps into their community as well and it's very thought through and it has a lot of sensitivities along with it so it's it's a beautiful thing to just to be building with them and helping them with all of the creations that that we do with them and and their team is Again, as I was saying, is a top team of uh, people that are experienced on tokenomics, you know, people experience on a lot of great engineers. Even If we also have our our engineers that work with them, um, people that really, really know how to build a platform like this. And, and so far, the first year has been a great uh, success, I will say, with the Air Force One Collection. And this second year, there's a lot of excitement coming up because these things gain momentum. And again, I am personally thinking that all of these new mediums that are coming up, such as the mixed reality headsets that we will be seeing very soon from Apple or updates updated pros from Meta, those things will really benefit from these ecosystems of real-time 3D content that is available to to build on top of.
0: Yeah, I love the concept that the as I say the narrative about these things like there you know you could buy one of your uh, the of ones and, and it be in a box digital box of course and then people mm-hmm. aren't opening their digital boxes because an unopened boxed OF one has kind of got like that's whole mystique about that and then that you know like w- which one you get and 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 how they like create that ongoing system um and how it just keeps re-engaging with their audience so it isn't just like this one-off thing uh, is fascinating to me, and it's a real skill to engage that well with an audience. I mean, this is a a very um, rich experience for somebody, as opposed to just buying a collectible, whatever, and sticking it on a shelf or sometimes just in the back of a cupboard. Um, yeah, it's an ongoing, uh, evolving digital asset in many respects. Hey, but you mentioned yeah, there yeah. the you mentioned there the uh, the vision uh the pro from apple that's yep. coming up these um idea of spatial computing so this must be really interesting to you because of the stuff that we've been discussing both the experiential aspects and the the user interface backsets and the possibilities that it opens up so just speaking in general terms this kind of high-end um because it is like a, a much higher fidelity uh, representation of the world, but uh, an overlaid version that focuses, it seems, more on a mixing of realities than it does on just a 3D um, joyride roller coaster kind of gaming thing. Where do you see the use cases for that? Like You are perfectly positioned to address those for a number of industries. Where do you see interest in that away from obviously the obvious, which is just watching a movie or playing a game? Mm-hmm.
2: I think um, to begin with just having 4k on each eye opens up a resolution that I think we still do not, we still cannot think of until everyone tries it and puts it on. Let's begin there to play something in a stereoscopic uh, at a size of an IMAX screen at 4k per, per, you know, I think that's gonna sit lots of people, you know, on their chairs because it's, wow, it's a but to me, it's more, as I was saying, like, yeah, you can play content. For me, it's more around what people will do with it. And we we saw it with uh, with Disney's um, in that keynote. Disney started to show what you could do when you are maybe watching a, a, a game, but you also have this 3D representation graphics on the right and floating on the left, you have your friends that are watching and maybe their beds. And on the top right, you have 10 other screens with you can really create a, a, a really big area around you uh, that has the features 3D graphics at the same time as featuring live TV and things like this. But to me, the exciting, exciting part of this is when, and I, I think is what we're going to start seeing, is when you clearly surround yourself within an environment and it's so crisp and it's so good and the sensors are so well-tuned that you all of a sudden forget that you are in your home, that you are in your sofa, because when it's really immersive is when that little, uh, you know, your mind starts to be tricked. And I think this is where we have the opportunity to create incredible and, and you know, incredible memories on on uh, with, with experiential uh, activations so with experiential things that surround you, that they put you somewhere else. And, and I think the work that we've seen now with, with the neural ra- radial, you know, the, the radiance fields, the nerfs, uh, yeah, Gaussian splatting, um, lots of those are coming right in perfect time for us to be able to be in places, uh, you know, that look very realistic, if not extremely photorealistic, even if you're moving your head to see them from different angles, a surrounding environment. And I think this is where we're gonna see it. That's the part that excites me the most. Um, other than, of course, some of these other more functional applications that I was saying about cars, and but but in terms of uh, storytelling devices, how we can start, and I think what's gonna happen is how we can start getting a nerf for every frame that we're capturing with our camera. So we can start playing, you know, an experience around you, that you can move your head and see it from a, a slightly different angles because we shot these with a the camera and we have, you know, I think this is where we're going to see things. And post-production then, it won't be on a flat frame. It will be on a volume that you have every frame, the perfect Nerf sold for that. I know that we. I'm shooting maybe a, bit, a few years from now, but this is... Oh, I'm a
0: huge, I'm a huge supporter of Nerfs and uh, what they represent in terms of, yeah, having... A completely different representation of what is a 3D model. I'm wondering from a design Mm -hmm. point of view though, do you guys do you think that there'll be like a new visual language that has to be developed for a spatial three-dimensional experience at that level of resolution? Because I mean, so for so long we've had the kind of the desktop metaphor, which is inherently Mm -hmm. a kind of like a 2D metaphor. And even in some of the Apple presentations, there was just, you know, panels that were almost like giant flat screen. 2d panels floating in three space as it were right but i imagine you guys are pretty excited to think about what a design of a a user experience could be when you can fully spatially be doing stuff with the resolution that you need for fine detailed graphics
2: exactly And, and here's here's where i always say this is where the dots connect which is we've been doing it for 12 years We've been creating all of these high definition graphics around these people, around these Avengers movies, and all of that. All of those things we've done, uh, we've done it for realistically, like in projects like Swan Song for Apple TV Plus. We've done it for many, many, uh, you know, big blockbusters such as Ready Player One or you know, Blade Runner. All of those. Citadel. Yep. Exactly. We're positioned. We've been doing it, but now we're able, and for two years we've been doing it. For real-time graphics is not a visual effects post process. It's something that we can start with our engineers uh, in real time. We can start putting all of these things in front of you, and we can start playing with with these prototypes that that, that we've been flexing that muscle, prototyping it visually in a way that doesn't need to work. It just needs to show the idea because it's just for a show. It's just visual effects. But that doesn't mean that we have not been thinking about this. And so we, we come with that advantage of 12 years of experience, thinking about things that float around you and graphics that could be functional or not. And, and that to me, that's why it's it's, it's such a great, very important um, moment for a company that is so unique like ours. is like that special breed that does uh, an amalgamation of different things with design and technology. It's just like the. It's the timing couldn't be better, and our positioning. Um, it's 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 very fortunate, but also it's it's very exciting what we can. And I wonder, do.
0: in the same way that we had that issue about you guys sitting between what is basically art department and VFX, I feel like you're going to be sitting somewhere between design company and production company in this new space because uh, again, this is going to redefine
2: those roles. Yeah, and I'm kind of a. We see it with with the automotive industry, right? We, we're we more of a design, f- focusing on designing and creating with our engineers final product that people will use when they hire or buy these cars. It's less about just the production company pipeline. And that's why I always say it's a bit of a special breed because it's difficult to find a company that is working with the top movies every year, but at the same time is doing the designs and, and, and engineering help with the user interfaces on the top brands, automotive brands, also is working on cinematics for the top game studios and continues to help brands such as Nike, Lululemon, Estee Lauder with all of their commercial and, and creative strategies. Um, you will find one that is very good at one, at two, but these amalgamation of these four main verticals that we have is what allows us to do attract the best talent in, in the world, I think, because they want to be doing, you know, this Marvel film now. And then in two months, this Porsche car. And then after that, this PlayStation game. They want to work on variety and exciting things. And I think that puts us in, in that great position to attract great talent too. How big is the studio? How many,
0: you know, you, we started by discussing it at where it was born, but Yeah, how... so uh,
2: we started in London um, five years after we opened the San Francisco office, where I've been now for seven years. Um, last year, we acquired Cantina Creative a Studio also in Los Angeles and Vancouver. And we also opened Barcelona last year. So we will be looking at around 220, 220 people across the globe, around, across these five um, studios. And even if Vancouver and Barcelona are just getting started, uh, they, they're showing great signs of growth already. and And we're very happy to... To have had the opportunity also to to welcome Cantina Creative to the territory family, and that's been uh, a great a great part of all of it. And we even also started a new business, which is uh, director roster uh, led. It's called Terra Firma. is a is a business for uh, that represents uh, our best directors and, and other directors that that we trust, and which uh, helped us to cover a lot of this live action um Commercial uh, activity. So, yeah, But it's been great.
0: In. It's been great catching up with you again. Uh, I always uh, like seeing what you guys are doing because it's such a great, as you say, uh, intersection Venn diagram between all the things that I love. <laughs> um, so, it's been great, and uh, it's great to hear that the studio is going so well. Thanks for taking time to talk to us, Matt. We appreciate it.
2: Anytime, and yeah, thanks for thanks for having you know, letting us have this opportunity to to show and talk a little bit more about what we are becoming.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks, guys, for that. And Mike knows this that uh, I've been a bit of a fanboy regarding uh, graphics in feature films, uh, whether it's on-screen graphics, interactive graphics that are rendered. Um, it's just one of those things that I've really enjoyed watching on the screen and researching over the years here at Effects Guide. So I'm really enjoyed this interview uh, with Marty on that. Um, Territory actually has a really good website. Uh, If you check out their website at territorystudio.com, one word, uh, you can check out more of the work that they've done. They've really done a wide variety of really cool, interesting work. And again, as they mentioned in the podcast, it's not just UI or screen graphics, but it crosses the line into so many other things. Well, that's it for this edition of the FX Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. From Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. We'll see you next time. Bye.
0: Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the "Contact Us" link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.